Guys, we made it to Hebrews 11. Today's scripture reading is 11 verses 1 through 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. I was interested this last week to find out that apparently I am an orchid child. Uh, Not a flower child from the 60s, uh, but an orchid child. Uh, It comes from insights from Dr. Thomas Boyce, a professor of pediatrics and psychiatry. He spent uh, four decades or more studying uh, human stress response, particularly among children. And uh, he talked about these insights from his new book, The Orchid Child and the Dandelion Child, on uh, fresh air on NPR. The insights come from some research that they had developed, putting uh, groups of children through moderately stressful uh, situations, like having to recount three and then four and then five and then six numbers, or uh, placing a little bit of lemon juice on the child's tongue and then measuring their responses. And what was interesting was a very clear distinction in how children responded to those stressful situations. On one end, many children had almost no physiological response to that challenge at all. Uh, These are what he called dandelion children. They just thrive in any environment. Uh, They can handle whatever you throw at them. They cope with stress and hardship very easily. Other children at the other end of the spectrum had very dramatic responses in both uh, the cortisol levels in their body and in their fight-or-flight syndrome, uh, adrenaline pumping through and, uh, and stress being ramped up. Uh, these are the orchid children, the ones who are more creative but more sensitive uh, to both good and bad environments. And these kids find it harder to cope with stress and uncertainty. Now, all kids need routine and structure and order in their lives, but uh, these more sensitive orchid children really are the ones who benefited from structure and predictability. And yet, maybe we know from our own lives or any of us who are parents or who have dealt with kids, there's obviously a fine line that parents try to navigate between not pushing kids into circumstances that are going to overwhelm them and, and make them fail and at the same time, not protecting them so much so that they don't develop mastery of themselves in challenging situations. 
I, for example, used to be very scared of the water when I was a kid. Uh, in fact, I can still remember this very distinct fear of drowning that I had uh, when I was a younger grade school kid. And so my parents signed me up for swim lessons. I did not want swim lessons. I was perfectly happy living the rest of my life in the shallow end of the pool with a life vest on. Everything was fine because the deep end was obviously dangerous. I could see eight or ten feet of water all the way to the bottom. And in my mind's eye, I could see me going all the way to the bottom and maybe not coming back up. And that seemed more real to me than my parents' assurance of their love and that they wanted my good. To jump off the deep end of that pool into that eight or ten feet of water meant I was going to have to have faith in my parents in spite of that fear. So I got on my bike and I rode away from my swim lessons. Literally. I, I was supposed to get on my bike and go to the pool and instead I went to the grade school. And I think my plan was I was just going to hang out on the playground until swim lessons were over and then go home and pretend like swim lessons had gone fine and I don't know how I thought this was going to work. I don't know how I assumed that my mom was going to be surprised that my clothes were perfectly dry. I thought my parents wouldn't figure it out somehow. I know it doesn't make sense, but this was not about logic. This was a life or death situation. What I could see right in front of me, the threat of drowning and the fear and the anxiety that that produced seemed more real than my parents' love and wisdom and care for me. And so that doubt led me to go a different direction. Am I the only one here that's ever experienced anything like that? We're continuing this uh, series in the book of Hebrews, and we've seen in chapters 9 and 10 that the reasons that this author has given us to hope in Christ, that he is the once-for-all sacrifice for sin, that, that he is our eternal priest who intercedes for us, that he has opened full and living and new access into God's presence. And then we saw last week at the end of chapter 10 how even with all that, we still face the temptation to turn away to what looks more immediately attractive or easy or controllable. And remember we ended this chapter 10 last time with this warning and this encouragement and a hope that we need to endure, and to walk in a life of faith. Because that's what we are called to. And yet a life of faith can be hard because we don't see Jesus like we will one day. We follow and trust an unseen God. And we're called to believe in his promises and his character when, frankly, sometimes it doesn't look like he's being good or he's at work or he's with us. But that is nothing new for God's people. God's people have always had to walk by faith and not by sight. We are part of a community of God's people throughout history who have modeled a life of faith. 
We've been exploring what this greater life that God offers us in Christ is like in the book of Hebrews. And and if you haven't turned there, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Today we're beginning a new section on the life of faith in chapter 11 in Hebrews. It will take us all the way to Easter. And we're going to see, starting today and, and for the next number of weeks, how just like us, These people of God, these believers, did not receive everything that God had promised them. They all died in faith, looking forward to what they did not yet have. They are pilgrims, people who are going from one place to another. And that's us. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are foreigners in this world and in this life. We are on the way. And that's what faith in the wilderness looks like in chapter 11 of Hebrews. So we want to look at a couple of things today. First of all, what is faith? What is it we're talking about here? The writer starts in verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And the writer is not, I don't think, so much giving us a definition as a description. This word assurance is used to communicate the idea of of substance or essence, the the very nature, a guarantee of something. It probably should be understood in the the sense of a, a solid confidence or a calm courage of things hoped for. We could read it this way, faith is a resolute confidence. Now, some of your translations may have something like, faith is the substance of things hoped for. And that's another way this verse can be taken. And and that's fine, as long as we understand the writer is not saying that our faith is what brings things into reality. Because sometimes you'll hear people calling themselves Christians teaching some version of that. If you just have enough faith, it's going to happen exactly the way you believe it. No, the writer is saying that there are realities for which we have no material evidence, and yet they are still real. And faith leads us to know and believe that they exist, and to trust the evidences that give us that certainty. Faith is the assurance of things that we hope for, and the conviction of things not yet seen. Now, that word uh, conviction there is is also often translated as a test or a proof in uh, legal settings. Uh, It had to do with the cross-examination of a witness. In other words, it's about confirming what's been asserted. Because if you think about it, we don't have any tools, we don't have any scientific instruments or implements that let us measure non-material reality. We can't put faith or God or love under a microscope and and get an accurate assessment of it. But we have faith. And and by faith, we understand non-material, spiritual things. It, It extends beyond what we can grasp with our senses. And the author says that, that that faith is, in fact, reasonable. Because, for example, he goes on in verse 2, By faith, the people of old received their commendation, and and we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. 
Now, now when we hear that word of God, I think the author intends us to hear back to Genesis 1 and God's voice that brought everything into existence. God said, let there be, and it was. The visible world, the author is reminding us, assuring us, did not generate itself. It can't account for its own existence. It originated with God. And even though God is unseen, he's provided evidence of himself through what he's made. So that reasonable faith looks at the created order and sees the God to whom it bears witness. Now, some of you who are church history buffs may know the names Basil the Great and his brother Gregory of Nyssa. They were leaders in the early church who worked together, for example, on the Nicene Creed, which affirms, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. I just learned recently they had an older sister named Macrina. She was known for her love, her faith, her wisdom, and they even called her their teacher. And back in the days before we had a 24-7 news cycle and endless entertainment, uh, they would dive into things like Macrina writing on philosophical questions like whether the mind can exist apart from the body. Like that stuff philosophers are still wrestling with today. And imagine, Macrina says, a, a jar or bottle that appears empty. You put it in a body of water and it floats on the surface, but then you push it down under the surface. And if the jar is, had been truly empty, then the water would immediately fill it up. But instead, that's not exactly what happens. Instead, the water burbles and bubbles around as the air is displaced and the air and the water are swapping places with each other. If we were merely physical beings, Macrina says, we would be limited to merely physical observations about the world. We would not be able to understand the jar as being full of air because our eyes cannot actually see that. It is our minds reasoning against our eyes that tells us what looks like an empty jar is actually full of air. The mind can take by faith what the physical senses cannot perceive. She says, or you can think about the phases of the moon. To our eye, it looks like the moon is getting smaller and bigger and parts of it are appearing and disappearing. But the mind can see that it is actually a sphere that is being illuminated from different angles beyond what the eye sees. Macrina says this shows us that we are more than just physical beings. You look at the world around you. You look at the way our bodies are made, the way our minds work, and we see evidence of a God who is creative and powerful and good and, and rational. And so we have faith in a God who is greater and more real than even what is in front of us because he's the one who created it all. Did you notice how the writer goes on to say in, in verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So faith is, is not just some wishful thinking. And we all love happy endings, you know, like in our, in our Christian books and movies, right, where 
the hard-hearted person is always touched and, and their hard heart softens and, and the wayward sinner always repents and comes to faith in Christ and everyone gets saved and they all live happily ever after and everyone loves each other. And we wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. I mean, it kind of makes me think about the story of a, a guy who's walking out in the woods and all of a sudden he turns a corner, there's a grizzly bear there and the bear knocks him to the ground and is about to you know, rip him apart, and the, the guy just cries out, God, save me, do something, T turn this bear into a Christian. And the bear stops and puts its paw down and lowers its head and says, Lord, for what we are about to receive, we are truly grateful. <laughs> not a happy ending for the guy, but a happy ending for the bear. See, faith is not a naive belief that everything is going to be great. Sometimes bad things happen to people that God loves. We follow a Savior who said, Blessed are you when you are persecuted, and people say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, because if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. The Apostle Paul says we must go through many trials to enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't be surprised. But faith assures us that God rewards those who seek him. I mean, rewards are good, right? Would anyone like the idea of getting a reward for following God? I mean, it's okay to say yes. Thank you, one brave soul. <laughs> rewards are good. It not, not, this is not some transactional thing. It's, it's not the idea that you know, we give in order to get something from God and you know, if I plant my seed, God's going to increase my money tenfold or whatever. No, God is not obligated to give us anything. We don't give to get stuff from God. The reward is to know God. The reward is God. Think of it this way. Imagine a, a children's piano contest. And the winners will be offered rewards. So which would be better? You do best in your age group and you get $500, or you do best in your age category and you get three months of private instruction with the best pianist in Indianapolis. Now, which one is better? If you're a child, you, you might say, well, I'll take the $500. I could use that for something. Or maybe if you're not a child. But... More mature persons with a love for music would probably say, I will take the lessons with the best pianist in Indianapolis. And the reason, of course, is that the reward for a truly devoted pianist who loves music is not money. That's external. The reward is to become even better at what you love, to have more of what you love. If you think about it, a, a meaningful reward to us is always based on what we desire most. Right? Like if I love money, then a reward for me is going to be a bigger bank account. And if I close the big sale, I don't want to just get a pat on the back and a good job. I want the commission check. Show me the money, right? If I love recognition, a meaningful reward might be applause. It might be standing up in front of people. It might be being the center of attention, making sure my name is at the top of the paper, being in the room where it happens, But if by faith we see the ultimate value of God himself, the one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who saves us, if that's our desire, if we desire him, then that relationship with him is the reward. You want more of him. You want more of the life he offers. That's what God offers. 
a great Christian author, Ann Voskamp, had something in a daily devotional earlier this week. You can have as much of God as you want. Every single one of us has the opportunity to have exactly as much of God as we want. That's what God offers. Not something external, but himself, knowing him by faith in a way that produces love and hope and courage and faith and confidence. So we could say then that faith, as the writer of the Hebrews is talking about it here, is assurance plus confidence. Faith is assurance of God's character, of ultimate spiritual reality, assurance of who he says he is, and confidence that he will do what he says he will do, confidence in his promises, confidence in the future that he has for us, no matter what I see in front of me right now. Some realities are unseen because they belong to the spiritual realm, and some are unseen because they belong to the future, when God's kingdom will break into this earth finally. The person of faith lives out a confidence in God's greater realities and ultimate promise and final fulfillment. Now, the writer doesn't contrast faith and works like Paul sometimes does. He doesn't talk about faith as the means of receiving justification, and and he doesn't even talk about faith so much as looking backwards at what God has done through Christ on the cross. Here he's really talking about faith that looks forward to the future. Faith is trust in God that enables the believer to keep going forward whatever the future holds, because that's what these believers needed to hear. That's what we need to hear. It's by living in this assurance and this trust that these Old Testament believers were commended by God. They bore witness in their lives to him, and then he bears witness to their faithfulness. And that's the second half we want to look at here. What does this faith look like? How does it get lived out? You know, we tell stories about superheroes, right? I I wish I'd had the insight however many years ago to invest in uh, Marvel superhero movies because that would be the revenue stream that would carry me and my children and my grandchildren for the next several generations and on and on and on. We love stories about superheroes. Well, ancients had something similar. Ancient literature would often encourage people with examples of those who have gone before and recounting their heroic, their admirable lives, their admirable deeds. And so the rest of chapter 11 is a series of life stories, in a sense, that that are meant to encourage God's people by those who have lived out this life of faith before us. And so we have three of them here given to us this morning. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. In verse 4. Now, that's pointing back, of course, all the way uh, to Genesis 4. And uh, you may know or remember the story. Uh, Cain and Abel are these two sons of Adam and Eve who each come to present their offerings to God. And the Lord looked in favor on Abel and his offering 
while he rejected Cain and his offering. And Cain was, perhaps understandably, upset and hurt by this. He was disregarded. And yet God tells him, back in Genesis 4, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, waiting to destroy you. So I think at one level, the distinction is not so much at the surface of the different kinds of offerings that they brought, but what was going on in their hearts and lives. Because God is speaking to Cain and saying, Cain, the, the problem is what's going on with you. If you do well, if you trust me, if you love me, won't you be accepted? I think maybe there's, there's a reminder there for us that, that our gifts, our prayers, our work, our service, all of it is acceptable to God maybe not even so much for their content, but when they're the outward expression of a devoted, loving, trusting heart that delights in God. And God speaks to Cain, just like he often speaks to us to give direction and correction. The real reason why God wasn't pleased with Cain's sacrifice is not the focus there. The The real question is, will I respond in faith and obedience to what God tells me? That was the issue for Cain. That's the issue for us often. I may not like what God says to me. I may not agree with what God says to me. The question is, by faith, will I trust that God knows and that I need to listen? That's hard. Because maybe God isn't giving you what you asked for. Maybe God isn't producing in your life what you expected. Maybe he's not responding to what you're trying to do. And and the results are not what you had wanted. And that's hard. But faith will lead us to listen to God's voice and accept his direction. Now, maybe there also are some hints about the nature of Abel's sacrifice. Genesis, again, tells us it consisted of fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. It seems that Abel brought the first and the best to what he gave to God. Probably because he believed God is the best. God has given me everything. God is the source of every good thing I have. God is good. And God deserves my best. And so by faith... I don't just give God the leftovers when I've already taken all the good stuff and focused on the things that I want. You know, for example, like with my time. So that maybe I'm at my best in the morning, and that means I need to get up early to spend time to be with God. Maybe you're not a morning person like me, and you need to find time somewhere else in the day to carve out to make sure that you're listening to God and seeking him. And that God's not just getting the leftovers of, you know, when I'm done with Candy Crush or when I'm done surfing the internet or when I'm done getting angry at the latest thing that's happening in the world. When you work on your finances, your budget is giving to God at the top so that everything else fits around it. Or does God get whatever is left over after you've, bought and spent and acquired all the things that you want. 
I think Abel had an assurance in God's character and a confidence that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And then we come to this mysterious figure, Enoch, in verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And that is literally about all we have of Enoch in the entire Bible. So go and do likewise. What do, you, what do we do? with What is the point of Enoch here? This faithful believer, according to the author of Hebrews, his interpretation of this limited Old Testament text was taken out of the world without experiencing death. And, and it's because he was commended as one who pleased God, which is, I think, building off of the, the scant evidence we have in Genesis, that Enoch walked with God. Enoch was close to God. That's walking with God is said of very few people in the entire Bible. Maybe the author still has in mind that quote from Habakkuk 2 that we saw last week at the end of chapter 10, my righteous shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Well, God had pleasure in Enoch. Enoch's life pleased God, so therefore he must have lived by faith and in a way that delighted God in his life. There's no record of God speaking to Enoch. There's no vision. There's no commandments on the mountaintop. There's no voice from heaven. There's no burning bush. There's no mention of God's presence uniquely in Enoch's life, and yet he followed God, apparently, faithfully. And yet in the genealogy back in Genesis 5 where we learn about him, I discovered he lived about half as long as anyone else in his family, which is a head-scratcher for us because we like to draw a straight line between walking faithfully with God and seeing good results in our lives. Enoch's life says it doesn't always work that way. He leaves us with a lot more questions than answers. And, and maybe in your life there's no obvious reason why things are going the way they are. There's just, there's no clear, here's what's happening and here's what you need to fix. It just is. Enoch knows what that's like. There's no voice from heaven. There's no bolt from the blue. There, you know. Does your faith in God help you keep following him when it's not clear where God is or what he's doing? Because I think that was Enoch's experience. And yet he continued to walk faithfully with God in a way that pleased God. And then Noah. By faith, Noah being warned by God, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, he condemned the world. That doesn't mean, you know, he, he went around criticizing the bad people in the world, but that he lived in such a way that his good life highlighted their sinfulness in contrast. And if you know the story, maybe you remember some of the background. The, the Lord saw that the intent of man's heart was nothing but wickedness all the time. And God was sorry that he had created people. And so he was going to send a flood to destroy humanity. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was a righteous man. 
Noah loved God and followed him in faith. So in reverent fear, he did what God told him to do. He constructed an ark to save him and his family. He was counted righteous because he did what God called him to do. He heard what God said, he believed it, and he acted on it. Noah built an ark because God said, it's not raining now, but it will rain. Do something now because I'm telling you what I'm going to be doing in the future. And so Noah invested an insane amount of energy and life and years and resources to this project. I mean, this ark was a massive undertaking, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, four and a half stories tall, done with hand tools, with a small group of laborers, probably just his sons. I mean, people lived longer in those days, but... Noah and his sons worked on this thing for over a hundred years. I made a wooden bench once. It took me weeks with power tools and instructions and a half a dozen trips to Home Depot. I quit that project about four times before I ever finished it. Does faith in God encourage me to pursue endurance, to keep following and investing and pouring myself out generously, abundantly, like Noah did, to work hard towards what pleases God. The ark was the outward expression of Noah's faith. And if you think about it, he built it with no immediate evidence of any rain on the horizon. A hundred years out, you got to trust me on this, Noah. Nobody had ever heard of a flood of judgment. Nobody had any neighbors building arcs in their front yards. They weren't anywhere near the seashore. Surely the neighbors who didn't love God anyway would have had plenty of reasons to doubt him, to mock him. Who builds an ark? Because of their faith in God, Noah and his family were willing to risk comfort and security and resources and the ridicule of other people. Faith in God gives me courage against opposition, both internal, against my own laziness and my own doubts, and external opposition. Does your faith help you stand strong and and have faith in God when the crowd is going the other way and when your flesh is saying, take it easy It's no big deal. God's never going to do that. We saw last week in the end of chapter 10 how hope, hope is the engine of enduring in the Christian life. Hope powers endurance. If I have hope, I can keep going forward. Faith is what powers that engine. Faith is the fuel of our life with God, the assurance and the confidence of who God is and what he has promised to do. Faith is the assurance of what we do not yet see, but we believe because we know the one who promised, and he is faithful. My mom, of course, found me on the playground at school. Uh, It was not particularly hard to figure out. There weren't a lot of places I could have hidden. I don't remember exactly what happened. I'm sure she probably scolded me. I'm sure she also listened to me, listened to my fears, and encouraged me and reassured me. 
I assume that that's what happened because I did end up going to swim lessons. And I learned to swim. And I can go off the deep end all by myself now. <laughs> because I realized my parents weren't trying to drown me. They were trying to help me. They were trying to help me grow in ways that I could not understand at the time, but I didn't need to understand. I needed to trust that my parents were good, that my parents loved me. I needed to trust their character and their promises. Now, my parents weren't perfect. None of us here are perfect parents or have had perfect parents, but I could have faith that they intended good, that gave me a confidence and an assurance. Faith is what keeps us going forward in the confidence that God is good and trustworthy. By faith, we believe that God knows what is best for me, better than I do. Faith tells us that what God says is not only believable, but it is the most important thing I could ever know and understand. So listen to him. Faith assures us that far from wasting our lives, pursuing God is actually investing our lives in what matters eternally. And that as we live that faith out here and now, God is with us. God assures us. God gives us confidence. Faith is trust in the unseen God. I mean, we all live in that faith. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much. You've made us in your image, but you have not left us to stumble around in the darkness on our own. You have given us reason to believe you, most of all, in your son, Jesus. Father, help us in our doubts, our unbelief, our fears to see you, to have faith in you that gives us confidence and assurance for all that you will take us into, especially when it's not easy, when what you're doing isn't obvious or we don't even like it. Father, you are good. Help us to grow in that faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.